You're listening to a ComicsXF podcast. And welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host will never deny to get three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. So, Will, how are you? Oh, I'm okay. I did not change clothes from the pub run. I'm kind of regretting that now because uh, I'm not sure whether it's my socks or my wet shorts, but I distinctly smell ass. But, you know, the podcast is not in Smell-O-Vision, so we're good there. Uh, but all you listeners just know, I'm in wet shorts and they stink. It's not pee-pee, though. Sweat. Sweat. Totally sweat. Important question for tonight, Mr. Lazowitz. What's your favorite documentary? Ooh, that is a very good question. I know. I came up with it. So while you're thinking, I'll go ahead and answer. Yeah, um, please. I, I I don't know if I have a favorite, but I have some memorable ones. One I rave about constantly. More of a, a series than one documentary, but uh, McMillions from HBO. Absolutely hilarious. Um, and a little bit infuriating. This, the story of how the McDonald's Monopoly game was rigged and turned into just something very mean-spirited by the end. Uh, and how it was basically money laundering and just organized crime, in essence. Before that, King of Kong. Uh, just a great, great good versus evil story. And I, I keep hoping that they're going to update it, that there's going to be a sequel. Very much needs to be a sequel. And then uh, before that, uh, all of these answers are very basic. I'm sure you're going to have, have something more interesting. Uh, but Paris is burning. Um, I didn't see that for the first time until a couple of years ago, and it is is very affecting and just such a such a capsule in time and such a celebration of queer culture before it was homogenized and brought to the the rest of the world. I'm trying to think if I have anything beyond those three. I remember seeing Fog of War, you know, 20 years ago, and that one being pretty interesting as well. As a as a young liberal, I was very uh, influenced by Michael Moore, but I'm fairly disenchanted with his stuff. Roger and Me, though, pretty classic. Roger and Me holds up. Everything after that, I think, diminishing returns. I don't even know if he's done anything after the the healthcare documentary he did, uh, and I don't even remember the name of that one. Mm, yeah, I do, I do not believe so. Nothing that made widestream cinemas which is of course the thing with documentaries is you know you find them streaming or you occasionally find one on the big screen but very rarely thicko that was the name of that yes i've got two that immediately come to mind one of which is so very very me batman and bill the bill finger documentary ah on target yep and and on target for the show the other is one that I did actually see on the big screen a couple of years ago at a 
AMC theater, not the one I normally go to, but another one that usually reserves one or two screens for like really off the beaten path type stuff. It's called The Lost Leonardo. It's about a Da Vinci that was found not too long ago. And the question about whether or not is it is actually a Da Vinci or done by one of his apprentices or even if it was at one point a Da Vinci, if it was restored so much that it's no longer enough of a Da Vinci to be considered a Da Vinci. But then more than that, it goes into the art trade and how much money laundering goes through art, how people buy art and keep them in those warehouses that exist in airports so they're never actually clearing customs so they never have to pay levies on them it became this fascinating thing about the seedy underbelly of the art world which was fascinating oh that is fascinating and still very on brand for you i mean I've, as I've, as a man of the classics right listen i've seen a million true crime documentaries when it comes to true crime my interests tend towards less towards modern serial killers because there's a part of me that in general gets a little uncomfortable with you know the interviews with the survivor the you know the the people who've survived the, the victims who might have made it out or the families of victims it always feels a tad bit exploitative but old school stuff hh holmes things about that i find fascinating and i love a good con artist story oh yeah yeah, I, just, I mean, which is, I guess, also some of the lost Leonardo stuff in there with the, the questions about art. But I love your D.B. Cooper. I mean, it's not really a con, but it's a heist. A good heist or a good con, I find fascinating. Well, that's that's Billy Williams right there from King of Con. He's the con artist who, like, you could look at him and say, oh, that guy's full of shit. There's a great podcast. Oh, Billy Mitchell. Billy Mitchell. Yes. Yes, there's a great podcast from a couple of years ago, or maybe even just last year, still should be able to find it, called Stealing Superman. You know what? I have a good friend of mine who keeps recommending that show to me, and I'm like, man, I, I listen to current events podcasts, I listen to my own podcast, I listen to wrestling podcasts, I don't have I don't have any room for this one, but it sounds interesting. I'll it, give him that. It's only eight, six to eight episodes, and it's it's done. But for those out there who don't know, it's about in the year 2000, Nicolas Cage had four high value comics stolen from his house, including a Detective 27, the first Batman. And even more importantly, when it comes to comics history and action comics, number one. And it's the story of how that action number one was stolen, how it was recovered and how it was recovered is great because I never realized how difficult it is when it comes to stolen property to actually catch someone unless they're walking away with the stolen property to actually have them arrested for stealing property or even possession of stolen property. Because in this case, the guys were like, we didn't know it was stolen. And since there was no way they could prove that they knew it was stolen, the guys who they caught with the action comics number one walked on it. Ah, criminal law. It's so so sneaky. 
I, I just love thinking about how Nicolas Cage has pissed away more money than I will ever see in my entire life. Dude has pissed away more money in 12 months than either <laughs> of us combined will ever see in our entire lives. But you know what? At least he's having fun, right? Yes, he's not he's not hoarding his money like some people do. I guess that is a good point. It's like, hey, if you're going to have all the money, have fun with the money. You know, we've had a lot of fun here in the beginning, and we've been able to talk about some some pretty neat things and things that have shaped, uh, at least in, in my mind, our, our worldviews and, and how we approach media. How about we just call this like, you know, the old 21, just like call it like just this is the show, right? Just just wrap it up from here. I wish we could do that. I will say that in all likelihood, this might be our shortest episode, not just because it is. <laughs> close to the fewest comics we have ever had in an episode but also it's only three comics and there's very little good that can be said about any of them i i'm not sure that anything can be said like yeah as in our production meeting today i like the best we have tonight is profoundly mediocre that's it that's the very nicest thing we can say Boy, I will take the profoundly mediocre over the abysmal, which we will also get to. Aye, aye. So, yes. what are we talking about tonight, Matt? Tonight, we are delving into the New 52 and the updated origins of the first three Robins and seeing what changes were made and if they're any good. And in case you couldn't get from what we've already said, they were not. Ah, uh, spoiler alert. They're all bad. They're all bad. So, like, but again, before we really get into it, this is another thing that sort of sticks with me. Dave Chappelle is a hurtful bigot, and he is a toxic motherfucker, and I just want to punch him in his dick. But undergrad Chappelle show was very formative because as I was tell- telling my class this week, we all thought it was the funniest fucking thing that was ever made. And he's got this... This episode of the original run of Chappelle show where it was all introducing like bits he had cut from the show because like he thought they were terrible and they weren't funny. And he introduced it as like tonight. This is all snouts. And this show, this episode, these books are all snouts. This is bad stuff. Before we get into these specific stories, it occurs to me that it amazes me how time gets away from one because In my head, the New 52 wasn't all that long ago. I know. And I realize it was 12 years ago. So just for context, in case there are some of you who have come to comics in the past five to six years, the New 52 was DC's first full-on major reboot since the Crisis on Infinite Earths. DC canceled their entire line and relaunched everything with new number ones. And theoretically, we're going to be rebooting the universe. 52 books. 52 books. The problem with this was that while some titles started from the bare bones, flat out pretty much from the beginning, Superman, The Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, the Bat titles, and Green Lantern pretty much continued 
as if nothing had changed or very little had changed. Green Lantern, even more than the Bat books, because the architect of all of this, Jeff Johns, had been writing Green Lantern, was in the middle of a nearly decade-long arc and obviously wasn't going to give up the story he'd already been telling. The other thing that became a problem with the New 52 was because the Bat books specifically weren't rebooted in the same way, at least. All of the Robins still existed, but the timeline was compressed down to five years. All of the heroes were supposed to have only been heroes for five years. And some of the books, like Action Comics and Justice League, were sort of filling in the gaps. And some of them were five years in. And some of those, that history, the new history was going to be filled in. But now you have all four Robins in five years. Oh, excuse me. You have Red Rob. Yes. Oh, we'll get there. We will get there. <laughs> and also some characters were written out of existence. Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane just weren't there anymore. A lot of the Titans just sort of weren't there anymore. Or what about were... Joe Potato? There's always Joe Potato. <laughs> we will get into a lot of the problems with the New 52 in general, or in specific with these specific books, because these books are very indicative of a lot of the problems with the new 52, because what we are covering today are the zero issues. These came out a year into the new 52 where basically they decided now it's time for those books that weren't finding ways to fill in the backstory after 12 issues we're going to go and do an origin issue to fill in some of these gaps. And I'm sitting here and I'm I'm going to leave this in. I'm going to cut the quiet that was before that. But I'm trying to figure out a way to exactly frame this. There are retcons that make sense and there are retcons that work. Those, uh, Alfred, for example. That's a big example because you know what that is? That is an additive retcon that adds something to a mythos. It is not change for change's sake. It does not fundamentally change a character. It fundamentally changes a relationship. It might fundamentally change Alfred, but it doesn't fundamentally change Batman. It doesn't fundamentally change the character that is the fulcrum that everything revolves around. And if it does change it, it changes it for the definitive better, right? Alfred works better as a surrogate father rather than just some guy who wanders into Batman's life. Precisely. The change after Crisis on Infinite Earths that said that Jonathan and Martha Kent didn't die when Clark was like 17, but was instead still alive moving forward, kept that anchor of his humanity and gave him someone he could talk to about being Superman, who wasn't someone else with powers. That, I think, is a fundamental change that kept Superman of the post-crisis era more grounded and was one of the problems with the New 52 era Superman. I think a lot of what Morrison did in Action Comics was fascinating. 
But exploring Superman as a stranger in a strange land with little connection to his humanity is something I don't think is a Superman story. That's uh, that's T-shirt era Superman, isn't it? Yes. That's weird. I think Martian Manhunter works, as we saw in New Frontier, as Stranger in a Strange Land. But Superman, and this isn't a Superman podcast, but allow me my little spiel here. All of this is going to be better than talking about these books. Yeah, there's that. Despite Superman being born on Krypton, Superman is the most human superhero in at least the DC universe, if not in comics. He is everything that a person should aspire to be. Well, hey, that was that was what Kirk said after Spock's death, right? Of all the aliens I have encountered in my travels, uh, he was the most human. Right. So I don't like when a Superman story is about him being an alien because he's not. He's supposed to represent the best of us. So he has to be of us. So yes, those are additive changes to an origin. The changes made to Mr. Freeze's origin. Oh, I love those. Oh, I love those. Can't wait till we talk about that book. Either either both the the original animated series or the ones in the New 52. I think they're two valid interpretations of the character because they are creating something. A lot of what we are going to see tonight remove something from the essence of a character. Removes or muddles or just dicks around with in just nonsensical ways. Or in the case of one of these characters, makes them a literally completely different character. Yep. And you will know which one that is because my voice will slowly raise (laughs) and raise until I am ranting. By the Uh, end of that one. It's the one Matt cares about the most. And oh, we will get there. But we are going to go in order of their time as Robin. Ah. So we are going to start with Perpetual Motion. This is Nightwing, Volume 3, Number 0. The writer is Kyle Higgins and Tom DeFalco. Pencils by Eddie Barrows. Inks by Eber Ferreira. Colors by Rod Reese. Letters by Carlos M. Manuel, edited by Scott Cunningham and Katie Cooper. The cover date is November of 2012. Dick Grayson lived a life to be envied as a circus performer, but when his parents are killed by mobster Tony Zuko, Dick winds up in an orphanage in Gotham City and in a strange partnership with the Batman. So I want to I want to talk about these credits here for a second and the uh, the creative team. So specifically, it says Tom DeFalco with Kyle Higgins for plot, and Kyle Higgins is credited with the dialogue. And I know he's uh, Kyle Higgins has done more books from this period, and it certainly seems like at one point he was being groomed for big things at DC, and then it just seemed like he decided that that wasn't for him. And I think that's interesting. And now he's has his own little universe over at Image, so good on him. Yeah, I don't know if he decided to back away or what might have happened. I mean, he was there through Eternal. I don't remember if he was in the writer's room on Batman and Robin Eternal, the sequel. 
he was the writer on Nightwing at this time. I think DeFalco really only comes on for this issue during Higgins's run, but he was one of the Snyder apprentices or mm-hmm. maybe apprentices isn't the right word, but one of the people that, you know, Scott Snyder shepherded into DC along with James Tiny and the fourth. So he's Snyder bros. Yeah, exactly. This is the one that, as you said, is perfectly mediocre. This is far and away the best, although I have some frustrations with this particular book. And is also the only one without a problematic creator watch tonight. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I'll say conceptually, this is a very strange story because it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't retell, you know, the Dick Grayson as Robin story particularly well because we get like jumps and skips around. And then it certainly doesn't tell the Nightwing origin, right? That would be at least be a story that hadn't been retold to death in DC uh, lore. Like, give me a modern day split uh, of Dick Grayson and Batman. Like, what convinced Grayson that he needed to go out and be his own man? Like, right? What is the literal origin of Nightwing? But no, this is this is more Dick Grayson as youth. And this is, oh, I don't really remember my parents dying. So I just, we just skip around and have some different scenes. And uh, I don't know. This was a very, very unsatisfying story. I just posted, as of this recording, our 99th episode, The Case of the Chemical Syndicate, Thrice Told Tales. And in that post, I commented that there isn't a Batman story retold more than The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. And I realized that I am wrong. This is the fifth version of Dick Grayson Becomes Robin that we have on this list. Because we have... Detective 38, the actual first time it happened. We have Batman Year 3. We have Robin Annual 4. And we have Dark Victory. And now we have this. Yay. I have particular issues with how much of Tim Drake is put into Dick Grayson in this story. Oh my god. Is this ever Tim Drake? The fact that Dick deduces bruce's identity yeah bad through physical clues now granted the way tim deduces bruce's identities he deduces dick's identity through the acrobatics and then logically traces it to bruce but still by doing this even if they had not butchered tim's origin which we will get to if they had kept it closer to the original That removes what makes Tim special. Tim is the one who was smart enough to figure out Batman's identity. And while, yes, Dick is confident and competent and is a very physical person, he could recognize that kind of thing. What we see here is he's practically Cassandra Kane, Because that's Cassandra's thing, that she reads body language as language. And we see Dick doing that here. There's these little like captions in places of him determining people's mindset through how they're holding their body. I hated that. I hated that. And that was absolutely my thought too. Like that, that's, that's Drake, right? That's, that's not Dick. And another like decision that I didn't like, why would you put a boy in the chair? Like, why would you make him 
you know, your guide back in the cave. Like that doesn't make any sense. And again, it's taking a Tim thing because yeah, when Bruce would first take in Tim, Tim is noted genius and hacker, Tim Drake. One of the early Tim Drake stories that we haven't covered yet on the show, and we will soon, has Bruce trying to deal with a case that he doesn't want Tim involved in. So he has Tim researching someone who is hacking the wealthy and stealing their money. And we'll we'll get to something to do with that later on. But again, that is what Tim does. I don't completely understand why it was like, okay, we need to put a lot of Tim into here. Even more so when we get to the point at the very end where it's, and here comes Lady Shiva. Another story we haven't covered yet, the first Tim Drake Robin miniseries. Guess who Tim Drake encounters on his first solo trip abroad and who helps train him lady shiva yep i kind of see why they're doing it because Shiva's about to show up in nightwing so they wanted to set that relationship up in the past but shiva is intrinsically tied into tim drake's coming of age so again by putting her into dick grayson's origin all you're doing is cribbing stuff from tim's past and shoehorning it into dicks and i wonder how much of what we see with what happens to tim drake is because they didn't want him and dick's origins to be too similar anymore although when we get to the tim drake stuff i'll discuss some of the stuff going on in titans at this time and i will just get angry i'm still astounded how this book doesn't do anything well like it doesn't you know, I already said how it doesn't really focus on Nightwing, but it doesn't tell the Robin story. Tony Zuko should be the heart of any Dick Grayson Robin origin story. And maybe they didn't want to focus on that because they have told it so many times. Then maybe the book should have been something different. I don't remember what Batgirl number zero was, but... Couldn't you have done a fun little Dick meeting Batgirl for the first time? A Robin and Batgirl story. There are things you could have done here. And I see this. There's this point where when Bruce takes in Dick, he doesn't take in Dick like he does in other versions. He puts him in the Wayne Youth Care Center. And I absolutely see that okay, what they're trying to do is say, this is 2011, 2012. Let's say it's been a year of real time. So it's been nearly a year of comic book time, six years. So it's 2006. Rich guys can't just take in wayward orphans anymore. So we need to have him in the orphanage instead. You want the synopsis for Batgirl Zero? Sure. All right. So it's Gail Simone. So I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. But here's what we got. How did Barbara first become Batgirl? What led her to don the cape and cowl? And witness Barbara Gordon's shocking injury and her inspiring drive to recover and walk again. You have to give Gail Simone the benefit of the doubt there because Barbara at the beginning of the New 52 is suddenly walking again. And they did not explain it. That was a edict. Everyone knows Barbara Gordon's Batgirl, so screw this Oracle stuff. Dan Didio is noted 
for hating the concept of Oracle. Absolutely hates the concept of Oracle because why would Batman, the world's greatest detective, need someone to do this stuff for him? Because Batman's out in the field and if he's trying to track something down, does he want to run back to the Batcave and possibly let a lead go away versus quickly calling Barbara and saying, hey, I've determined this, this, and this. Can you cross-check this for me? And Alfred has to dust. Listen, there are writers who do a bad job with Oracle and make her do all the work and Bruce is just a pair of fists. But again, Oracle should be additive to what Batman can do. And it's when you write it as reductive, when you write it as Bruce just needs Barbara to do everything. And we've seen that in some of our lesser works towards the bottom of the list. That's where the problem comes in. And one particular sour note for me here is, okay, at the beginning, Dick gets in trouble and his parents have to pick him up from Gotham Central. And it's the night that his parents die. And it's like, oh, yes, this is how your mother wanted to spend her birthday. We really needed to make the day that Dick's parents die his mother's birthday. Yeah, that was real dumb. There's no reason to make that moment any worse than his parents died in front of him. Why do you need to twist the knife in that particular story? It doesn't make sense to me. I will say the art is the nicest that we have tonight. Far and away. We've talked about Eddie Barrows on the show a little. He did at least some of the art in A Lonely Place of Living. And, I mean, we've talked about him plenty on the the column. He did Task Force Z. He's done a lot of stuff. He is a very solid utility player. He gives you good, readable superhero art. I think some of the layouts are a little bit messy, but uh, it's definitely better than what is to come. Oh, yeah. And the colors here, Rod Reese does a really nice job. He's a, a colorist who whose work I note. He's gone on to become a really excellent penciler over at Marvel, but he started out doing colors. And it's not flashy colors. It's not colors you notice. But knowing that it's Rod Reese, you can look at it and be like, okay, he knows how to work with the artists he's working with and get a good effect without it being distracting from what's going on. Moving from pencils to colors or from uh, colors to pencil, that's an interesting kind of career change. And his current style is very Sienkiewicz. It's really wild. He did a run on New Mutants with Vita Ayala that is outstanding. Let me let me see if I if my special guest is around. Squeakers. Uh, I'm sorry, Squeakers is apparently not available. We have rearranged the cats in the house and given one uh, a bit more free roam, and uh, he's very vocal. I thought he was going to be around, and uh, Squeakers uh, he likes to squeak, so I uh, I thought he could liven up the episode, but oh well. <laughs> Uh, so without uh, any comments from Squeakers, uh, I believe it's time to put Nightwing number zero on the big board. We are at 306 stories on the big board. 
Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at number 50 is A Savage Innocence, where the Joker gets the power of the Spectre. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's Batman Legends of the Dark Knight 16 through 20, better known as Venom. At 100 is Shadow of the Phantasm, the Batman and Robin Adventures Annual that is a sequel to Mask of the Phantasm. At 150 is Gates of Gotham. At 200 is Batman in Bethlehem, the Batman 666, where we see a possible future with Damien as Batman. At 250, we have a Clash of Symbols, Detective 617, a Batman and Joker one-off. And all the way down at 306 is Curse of the White Knight. Uh, Let's see. So this is not a good book. It's not terribly offensive it's still bad uh i think the ceiling for this is probably 250 yeah i like clash of symbols more than i like this that's for sure i mean i'm a little i'm higher on clash of symbols than you but yeah i mean this is better than last week's catwoman election night special i think he's the only one that is but yeah that uh I will say this book didn't actively insult my intelligence. It insulted my respect for canon, but not my intelligence. Uh, election night fucking insulted my intelligence. Yeah. So between 250 and 260? Yeah. I don't think it's as... I mean, at 257 is Bat Batmite's New York Adventure, which was at least fun. It's very trifly, but it's fun. Yeah, this there's is, nothing fun about this. No, because I we didn't even really discuss like the thematic stuff that Higgins and Falco are doing here, with you know Dick perpetually talking about you know moving forward versus looking back, and it's just a lot of overwriting there. Uh, remind me what's uh, what's Faith at two fifty eight? Faith is that story about the Batmen, the street gang that were inspired by Batman. Leslie Tompkins learns Bruce is Batman. What's bad about that story? Well, a it's got awful lettering in places. I think you particularly point out Batman accepts these street punks using baseball bats to beat up criminals as if they could be his you know new support system without Uh, really researching any of them the gotham and gotham girl problem yes and it's so very inspired by new york of the time they're clearly analogs to the guardian angels it's got a very dark nighty sort of vibe batman just lets a criminal get blown up which is a mike Barr thing because we know that his views of batman's morality are a little bit looser than most writers well, I think this is going to be either above or below faith, how you want to call it. Let's go above. This is the new 258. The new 258 and the ceiling for tonight. Oh my, yes. Oh boy. Again, the- folks, it's all snout tonight. 
The real question is, I don't know which of our next two books is worse. Oh, I I know. I know. Because look, unlike some people, I can I can be objective <laughs> when it comes to Tim Drake. <laughs> okay, you make a valid point. But I, I will argue some points there. But uh, we're not getting to that just yet. We are instead next going to Everyone Has to Start Somewhere. This is Red Hood and the Outlaws, Volume 1, Number 0. Uh, <laughs> do, we, do we have to talk about this one? Oh, listen, this might be the only time we cover anything Red Hood and the Outlaws. If I can I avoid so. having this show up anywhere else... I will be happy. The writer is Scott Lobdell with pencils by Pasquale Ferry, Iguara, and Brett Booth. Inks are by Booth. Colors by Blonde. Letters by Desi Cienti and edited by Eddie Berganza and Darren Shan. The cover date is November of 2012. See the transformation of Jason Todd from street punk to Robin and learn the secret of the Joker's involvement in Jason's life. So, uh, how about a problematic creator watch for this book? As we were saying in our production meeting, this is a new record. This is the problematic creator watch hat trick. Ah, uh, all-star! We've got three problematic creators in this book. Scott Lobdell, Brett Booth, and Eddie Berganza. Lobdell and Berganza are both known for committing sexual harassment, and Booth encouraged people who made physical threats of sexual violence against a female comic book journalist. Nice. Is, they are all terrible people. And this book is terrible. This is a painfully bad comic. The writing is bad. The art is bad. Poor Jason Todd's father looks like some kind of fucking alien creature. Like, I have no... This is the worst drawn human figure I have ever seen. Ever. You could tell me he was a literal alien from the alien movie, and I would believe you. It's that bad. One problem in some ways here for me is this is narrated by Jason. Which means all of the things that we're seeing are things that Jason knows. Like his birth. Like his conception literally behind a dumpster. When I believe when his mom was underage. Yeah, exactly. I have that note to begin with that she's still in high school. And I mean, yeah, I have little doubt that Willis Todd is probably a dropout. But I'm pretty sure he's an of age dropout. Way to be gross, guys. Yeah, but everything here is gross. This is a remarkably frustrating book. Post-crisis Jason Todd could be frustrating. He had anger issues, but when we first meet post-crisis Jason Todd, he's stealing the tires off the Batmobile. It is a property crime. He's a kid. Here, when Batman first runs into Jason, he's lifting prescription meds from a clinic so he can resell them on the street. He is committing a major felony. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Time out. Not just any clinic. 
Leslie Tompkins clinic. And here is one of the great sins of the new 52. No one in the new 52 was allowed to be over the age of 35 and way more than, as a woman, 110 pounds. Leslie looks like she is the same age as Bruce here. Yep. And this is the same era where Amanda Waller suddenly looked like a supermodel because everyone had to look like they were starring on a CW drama. And it's just so obnoxious and so annoying. And this is the beginning of Leslie being sort of phased out of the Bat mythos, which is why we don't see Leslie that much anymore. Because somewhere in the New 52, it was just decided that that character didn't work anymore, which is frustrating and dumb. Jason is a drug dealer. And you can argue there are numerous socioeconomic reasons why people turn to dealing drugs and legalization and the criminalization of narcotics is an issue in its own right. But this comic is not trying to make any of those arguments. Nope. This comic just wants Jason to be the biggest punk he can possibly be and his father to be the biggest scumbag he could possibly be. So when Lobdell eventually resurrects him because he wasn't really dead, and as it turns out, for some reason, he completely forgets the twist he adds to the end of this book, and it turns out it was the Penguin who killed him. He did not even Two-Face, like pre-New 52. It becomes the Penguin, so Jason can briefly take out the Penguin and run the Iceberg Lounge, a plot thread that winds up going nowhere and is quickly forgotten. As it should have been. Of the three people who die in this book, then, uh, none of them are actually dead. So for, I don't know, 17 or 18 pages, like, it's it's just normally stupid and bad. And then we come in with these Joker pages at the very end of four pages of, aha, I am the Joker, And I orchestrated it the whole thing. I orchestrated it all. I am the creator of Jason Todd's pain. I faked his mother's overdose. And and I set up everything. I don't really know what happened to him when he was resurrected, but I organized and orchestrated everything else. (laughs) I am such a master planner. Like, it was such a dumb, dumb, dumb tack on, especially to try to accomplish that in four pages. Like, if you want to lay out how the Joker basically orchestrated all of Jason Todd, right? Just didn't just kill him, but set him up to fail as Robin. That's your story. That's your story. That's your 22 pages. That's what you should be telling. Not this stupid, stupid, stupid tack on at the end. We wind up compressing the two, Willis Todd's wife, Catherine, and Jason's birth mother. So we get rid of Jason looking for his birth mother. As you said, it's, you know, she didn't really die. I mean, they don't go into details with the Joker about how he sent her to Africa. Why, if you don't have all of the crazy, you know, death in the family stuff, 
does that have to take place in Africa anymore? Couldn't that be somewhere convenient to or logical for Jason Todd to be? Why did we keep that detail, but get rid of the rest of them? Just nonsense. And Batman here, both Batman and Alfred are kind of assholes. When Batman finds Jason robbing the Tompkins Clinic, he grabs a, what, 15-year-old kid and roughs him up. Leslie has to basically pull Bruce off of him. Yes, he was stealing from the clinic, but he's not committing a violent crime. And we don't see Jason try to put up a fight. Bruce just starts roughing him up. This is the worst kind of Batman writing, where his first answer to everything is violence. And this is compounded by terrible art. Oh, yeah. And wildly inconsistent in that the three art styles, the Ferry, the Guara, and the Booth, look nothing alike. Booth pencils just the Joker bit at the end, but Guara and Ferry don't look that similar, and neither of them are inked well. I tend to like Pasquale Ferry's art. Granted, I like it when he's doing like Adam Strange or Mr. Miracle. That stuff seems to work better with Ferry's style, but Booth's inks just destroy this and make it look muddy and unpleasant unpleasant is a good word for both the visuals and the writing and jason is also by the way an idiot because you know leslie intercedes he's like i don't know what the old lady had on him you, you never in your time as robin ever asked about what leslie meant to bruce you, you have so little curiosity about any of this that you you couldn't put two and two together on that one and alfred is very distant and snarky towards jason not playfully snarky but more of a jerk than we're used to with alfred and when you're already having an aggressively angry batman having an alfred who isn't trying to balance that out by being decent compounds all your problems there is nothing this book does even competently. It's all just just a miserable exercise in bad comedy, in bad storytelling, in bad art. Yeah, you, you mentioned this earlier. Why would you not try to simplify Jason Todd's origin? Why would you still just retell the same story of oh he got lured to africa and then he was beaten and then he was blown up we've we've wanted to to make it so simple for all the decades of joker just beating him to death then just do that just and, none of this makes any sense right by simplifying it by not having the the second mother that doesn't really solve any of the problems and it just Again, adds another fake death into this origin. And what I also can't quite wrap my head around is, again, without all of that other stuff, why does Jason show up to meet his mother for the first time in costume? He doesn't know Joker's there. Death in the family, as we know it, isn't happening. 
So why does he go and meet his mother dressed as Robin? He's flat out going there and just revealing everybody's secrets by showing up as Robin. Again, if you're wanting to make it a point that Jason is so focused on this, he's not thinking, fine, make that point. But you're not. You just needed him to be in costume. So when Joker was beating him with a crowbar, he was beating up Robin and not just Jason Todd. Aha! Contrivance strikes again. And at the end of the story, Joker, as narrator at the end of that backup, He's like, we're going to keep this our little secret. So they never have to mention it again. And no one has. And everything is better for it. Whenever Rebirth happened and the universe got shuffled around again, I guarantee you this is all gone. To quote Gay Sherman the Critic, and nothing of value was lost. Yeah, if we're treating this as two separate stories, right? The the Jason Todd story ends and then the Joker backup begins. The Jason Todd story ends with just the lamest, most cliched thing imaginable. Jason Todd narrating the story. And the last panel is, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. What? One thing that this simplifies... This version of Jason's origin, it's not even made really clear in this issue much about it. The one thing that the New 52 does improve when it comes to Jason's story is it gets rid of that stupid Superboy crime, trying to escape and get into this reality causes ripples in time that resurrects Jason. And it's just, yeah, Talia threw him into a Lazarus pit to bring him back from the dead. But we really don't get that here. We get a hint of it, but we don't see any of that. Why didn't we spend some time with a freshly resurrected Jason with the League of Assassins? Yeah, uh, that would be more interesting, but you had to see his parents fucking. Or the whole thing with the new... 52 Jason is after he left the league, he briefly joined this other sect of warrior monk type folks. Why couldn't we have gotten like a Kung Fu style Jason learning some kind of martial arts and trying to find peace? And we could have dealt with all the origin stuff in like two pages and then had a new story with Jason. That might have been more interesting. Again, though, what you're forgetting is we had to see his parents fucking behind a dumpster. And, hey, nothing funnier than uh, childhood neglect and abuse. No, yeah, that's great stuff. Handled with so much delicacy. Nothing better than watching Jason have to take care of his strung out and or drunk mother because that's not at all triggering for people who might have had those kind of experiences and want to see that kind of thing dealt with in a way that would affirm their experiences rather than it being an excuse to be like, yeah, and this is why this kid is so angry. Are you ready to put this turd on the board? Yeah. Oh, that sound of defeat means it's time. But Red Hood and Outlaws, number zero on the big board. 
I could go as low as 307. I could go as low as splitting uh, a white knight in Curse of the White Knight. That's how bad this book is. I'm not saying that's where it has to be, but we are truly thinking about the bottom of the barrel here. The highest this thing is going is 300. I would absolutely agree with that. Because again, um, Widening Gyre has five okay issues and then one that is just abhorrent. Yes. And this thing gets credit for only being 23 pages. If this had been an arc, and if it had been this quality over an arc, if this had been five, you know, five issues of this, it would absolutely be the bottom. Just because of the the nonsense, the the poor writing, the terrible art. You know, say what you will about Sean Gordon Murphy. The art is at least passable. Right. It's not it's not great. I think people are too high on it. Um, he has no eye for colors, but it's at least an interesting style. Right. His action is OK. This art is truly wretched. And I don't like anything that Sean Gordon Murphy is trying to say, but he is trying to say something. Yeah, it's like it's it's kindergarten babbling. But it's like you can see the words almost trying to form. Like the sentences are trying to come together. This is just noise. This is derivative pablum. Yes. It's not even good pablum either. Like, you know, I can I can get like bad to okay grits. And I'm just like, oh, this is warm gruel I can put in my belly. Num, 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 num. Like this is like grits that have been spiked with sugar that just make me mad. Earlier this week... I saw a truly terrible movie. Oh, no. What'd you say? Like, MST3K. This will be on an episode of MST3K someday movie called Don't Look Away. It's a horror movie, and the trailer made it look like a combination of the Doctor Who episode Blink about these aliens that appear as angel statues that when you're not looking at them, they can move but the minute you look at them they freeze and the movie mannequin it's like a killer mannequin movie that as long as you're looking at it it doesn't move and i went it's like that's the it's the ghost in the spook house in uh super mario world i went into this knowing this wasn't gonna be a good movie i enjoy a good schlocky horror movie but this was wretched like the entire the sound on the whole thing seemed like it was done in adr the performances were mind-bogglingly bad. But there was a genuine attempt. It's got that, that Tommy Wiseau, the room kind of vibe. Oh, no. Where it might not be good, but it's like, you swung at this. You're not good at it, but you tried. And you feel bad for criticizing it too harshly because like, oh, you, you really did try hard in this. And you can laugh along with it or laugh laugh at it, but you're having a good time laughing at this thing. This comic shows no effort, no care. No. <sighs> it does get something for being so short. That's the only thing it's got going for it. Yeah. It is somewhere around 302. 
302 to 304, I think. Because again, Mad, White Knight, and Curse of the White Knight are so long. Mm. They are ponderous. Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves is god-awful. And it was a a slog, but it wasn't as ponderous as any of the three below it. That was six issues that felt like 8 to 10 versus six issues that felt like 12 to 15. Agreed. Refresh me on the surrogate. Surrogate is another story with Leslie Tompkins. That's the one where there's all the racism with the hip-hop artist who's... Oh, oh, God, that's bad. Yeah, I'm thinking this is above that. Things have to be deeply, desperately offensive to get below the surrogate. Yeah. Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves, that has a lot of sexy corpseness. That has Batman making a lot of jokes. That has a whiny Superman. That has... Oh, I just remembered the Baskin-Robin joke. Yep. That phobia. That has a lot of that stuff. The surrogate, again, if the surrogate was six issues long, it would probably have been worse than Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves. But as only three issues, it can't have quite as much terrible racism in it as that. All right. So the new 303? The new 303 it is. It's so very bad. Our final story of the night is Red Robin. This is Teen Titans, Volume 4, Number 0. The writer is Scott Lobdell, with pencils by Tyler Kirkham, inks by Matt Banning, Norm Rappend, and John Sabal, colors by Andrew Dalhouse, letters by Desi Cianti, and edited by Eddie Berganza and Darren Shan. Cover date is November of 2012. Young genius and acrobat Tim Drake wants nothing more than to be the new sidekick to Batman. But when his plans get him in deep trouble, what will become of Tim and his parents? Problematic Creator Watch, once again, Scott Lobdell and Eddie Berganza coming back for this one. Oh, hey, uh, Brett Booth also did the cover. Oh, very true. Yes. Hey, we get the hat trick again. Sweet. I am willing to see that this is probably not as bad as Red Hood and the Outlaws. One, because... Tyler Kirkham's art might not be great, but it is infinitely better than the art that we had in Red Hood and the Outlaws. Yes. And it also, I don't think, dips into the problematic territory when it comes to social stuff that the Red Hood one does. However, I hate this comic. (laughs) i hate this comic with a fiery passion the tim drake of especially the early new 52 but pretty deep into the new 52 up until around eternal they did their best to really distance him from the bat titles He has a brief crossover during Death of the Family. But aside from that, he really doesn't show up much because his entire generation, Superboy, Wonder Girl, Impulse, were sort of the ones that were getting ignored the most during this era. 
and they didn't quite work. And so they did all sorts of things to him, to them in general. But Lobdell basically completely rewrites who Tim is and does not in the least understand who that character was before the new 52. It feels like he read a Wikipedia entry and not the whole entry, just the introductory paragraph to get the broadest strokes and then reinterprets that into an unlikable character. This Tim Drake basically blackmails Batman into him being Robin. And does not really figure out the secret. I mean, you get a hint. Bruce makes some comment about when he reveals his identity, Tim didn't seem that surprised. So maybe Tim really did know. But he jumps through all of these hoops following a fake trail Bruce laid out. Wouldn't it have been more impressive if Tim really did know to just not go through all this crap and show up at Wayne Manor? Here is the thing that this book fundamentally changes. Do you remember A Lonely Place of Dying, the first Tim Drake story? I do. I re- But I, I remember Papa Drake being in danger or some issue there with that that's a different that's a different that's uh a later story ah the the thing with the lonely place of dying tim doesn't want to be robin tim shows up on dick grayson's doorstep batman is losing his mind because jason died you need to go back and be robin and dick's like i can't I'm not Robin anymore. I'll go back and I'll talk to Bruce, but I can't be Robin again. And when they're both in danger, only then does Tim don the Robin costume and didn't do this to audition to be Robin. By making him this driven to just be Robin, it makes him a fundamentally different character. Deepens him. Yeah. And... Also, at the beginning here, Tim is a nearly Olympic-level acrobat. Tim was never that. Tim was the brain. Tim spends his first year of of real-world time having to learn all that stuff because he wasn't training to be Robin. And one of the things that you see throughout Tim's tenure as Robin is him knowing he is never going to be the acrobat or the fighter that Dick Grayson is. So he leans into being a detective. Again, making him an acrobat feels like you're making him more of a Dick Grayson clone and taking away the things that make him uniquely Tim Drake. Where is editorial in all of this it seems like there would have been a stronger hand in preventing oh you got some tim drake and dick grayson and you got some dick grayson and tim drake like these characters should be distinct i think it shows how little they cared about tim drake Mm. tim went from having having had his own book between robin and red robin 
for nearly 200 issues between the two series to being the headliner on Teen Titans. And I think the only reason they kept him that much around was because they knew there would be a vocal part of the fan base who would have screamed bloody murder if Tim Drake was gone. Because that was the book where they dumped a bastardized version of Tim Drake, a bastardized version of Impulse, a bastardized version of Wonder Girl. And yes, Superboy had his own title too, but both new ti- both Teen Titans and Superboy were two of the first books to be canceled out of the New 52. Neither of them made it past 30. I think that this was a case of, listen, just make it clear that he was always Red Robin, that he was never Robin, and do a story that explains why he and Bruce aren't as much on speaking terms as the others are, and you're good. And that is what we get, and it is a hugely frustrating comic to me. I can't imagine. And Tim is a selfish little shit. Yes, he is. My goodness. Because here he has these parents, and they're working-class parents who are proud of their son who they know is a genius and who they know has these incredible acrobatic abilities and they know he's destined for bigger things than this and they keep having this scene with parents saying stuff like that to him and he's a complete fucking ingrate and in the end he nearly gets them killed why the hell does batman take this kid in why doesn't he just force Tim into Witsec with his parents? If he is worried about Jason, who was brash and headstrong and got himself killed, nothing we have seen with Tim in this story makes it seem like he's not going to do the same thing. He might not have the anger, but he's cocky. And, you know, having the compressed timeline, it also, again, just cheapens Jason's loss, right? If Robin seemed just like this endless production line, this endless cycle of, oh, well, all right, I lost one Robin. Let me get another one. Oh, I lost him. Let me get another one. Like, this all seems to mean much less. Yeah, again, with this timeline, none of these kids could have been Robin for more than a year. It feels like an internship. We saw in a lonely place of dying that Bruce has to sort of struggle with the decision to take in Tim and make him Robin. Here he is sort of struggling with it, but it's a lot of him just being a grumpy SOB to Alfred and not talking to Tim when Tim comes to him about this. And and maybe that's a thing that if you draw too much attention to it, like the whole conceit just falls apart. Like any modern retelling of any Robin origin story should highlight the fact that this kid is a kid and batman is putting him in danger and we saw a little bit of that in the grayson story but not too much of it this should be a very deliberate choice and each choice should be more deliberate and more painful than the last right by the time you get to tim drake batman has lost two robins right one through death and then one through what i still presume is irreconcilable differences but 
we don't see that really weighing on him in this story. And why is Alfred so gung-ho about Tim becoming Robin? It's not like he's talking to Bruce to get him to talk Tim down. He seems like he wants Bruce to take Tim in or knows that Tim won't take no for an answer. And there's a line in this issue that I hate. Oh, no. But as I drove into the Batcave that night, I suspect part of Alfred was genuinely pleased to point out how wrong I was. That's not Alfred at all. No version of Alfred is like, oh, look, you were wrong about this kid who has now endangered his life and the life of his parents. Excuse me while I'm smug for a moment. And I think the most nonsensical thing is when just Alfred just serves as like just exposition to move the plot along. Tim Drake has hacked into the Penguin's money and stolen a hundred million dollars. Like why would Alfred not know that? Or why would, why would Alfred know that and Batman wouldn't? Like that doesn't make any sense. There's the the Oracle problem. It's treating Alfred like the man in the chair versus the foster father. And everything Tim does in this book, he does poorly. He doesn't figure out Batman is Bruce Wayne. He steals Penguin's money and is lazy enough about it, leaves enough of a trail for Penguin to find his way back to Tim. Nothing he does is something that makes me think he deserves to be Robin. And boy, howdy, he has the most kind and forgiving parents in the world. After he has completely fucked their lives and is forcing them into WITSEC because witness protection, witness security. Sorry, I keep using that abbreviation as if everyone knows it. Hey, it sounds much cooler than this comic. Forces them into that. There isn't a moment where they're even mildly annoyed at him. They're just like, oh, no, son, you go off and be Robin. You do something bigger because you should while we go and hide in obscurity. Hey, they're going to get set up with a new life. They get to move out of Gotham. I would have to imagine, right, you're going to get a pretty good job. The kid is... Apparently going to live with Bruce Wayne or he's going to live with Batman. Yeah, he's going to be taken care of. I mean, it's not the worst deal. Also, again, these are these like little frustrating inconsistencies in this book. Batman saves Tim and the Drakes from being gunned down by Penguin's thugs. The next page takes place in, I assume, a Justice Department building where... Tim is sitting in a dark room and Bruce comes in and kind of reads him the riot act. Tim is in a suit. So Tim actually took the time right after he and his parents were nearly shot full of a million bullet holes to change into nice clothes before being ushered to the security where he'd be protected. That just doesn't make sense. And again, After he has now had to say this teary goodbye to his parents, Bruce brings him into the Batcave for the first time, and he is drawn with the 
biggest shit-eating grin on his face. He's not even thinking about the fact that he's never going to see his parents again. And he screwed up their lives. He's like, yes, Batcave. Wowie, wow, wow. He's not a likable person. And let me ask you this, because I have no sense of what's going on in this book. The very next page after this, like, wow. And before the, I'm not Robin, I'm Red Robin. That middle page with, what is this? Cryptids or Salt Lake City? Like, what is that panel in reference to? Those are the two new characters that were added to the Titans roster. Skitter and Bunker. So that's just, hey, let's give you two panels that are like these new characters who you met at the beginning of the new 52. This is how Tim would eventually find them by using the Bat Computer's files that Bruce already had on them. Oh, cute. We then get to the very end where Bruce says that his name is now Tim Drake, which means Tim Drake wasn't his real name. So you changed his name, logically, because the Penguin is looking for whoever he is, but you didn't change his first name? Because he's called Tim throughout the entire book. I don't know how everything works at Witness Protection and such, but you'd think they would just change a person's entire name. Or what's the point in changing his last... This is just dumb. This is dumb, 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 dumb. Oh, his name was originally uh, Dick Fingers. Tim Dick Fingers. And then the government came along and said, oh, well, we'll just change the family name because Penguin's going to be searching forever for the Dick Fingers. When I stomp on your foot and say, hello, Mr. Thompson, you say hi. I think he's talking to you. Oh, this is just a dumb, dumb, dumb story. Uh, Witness protection is so fucking cliched. So cliched. This version of Tim Drake is so unlikable. And it's why when Tinian takes over with Detective Comics after Rebirth, all of this is just wiped out. No one acknowledges anything from this volume of Teen Titans or the next volume of Teen Titans. The Will Pfeiffer written one, even though it's a little bit better than this, it's still not good. And it's just, it's all ignored because it's a hatchet job on this character. And it's just, it feels like a different character. And I hate it. Tell us how you really feel, Matt. And, you know, I can agree empirically, it is not as bad as the last one. But there's a personal part of me that just hates this comic more because it just massacres a favorite character of mine. Oh, they massacred my boy. On that note, I believe it's time. But Teen Titans number zero on the big board. So I have to be honest. Uh-huh. There is nothing in this book that is offensive in the same way that there was stuff in the Red Hood one. And that the stuff starting at around 289 on down has offensive, offensive material with no, it doesn't even seem like it is 
good-natured, like, oh, I'm trying to do something and it's not working, where it just seems like it's tone-deaf or terrible. So it can't go below Tales from the Dark Multiverse, Batman Hush. Everything below that is the dregs. Yeah. Um... I mean, it might, actually, it, it could go below, it can't go below Grounded, the one below that. Because that's the Superman and Batman as young men as white savior story. That's the first one where it's like, there is something fundamentally just awful in this comic. Except for less Batman story, which we need to move up a bit. Uh, well, how do you feel about this? We'll, we'll go up just a scooch. Uh, Batman annual number 25. Oh, the Jason Todd origin. The, that is the one where Jason came back from the universe being punched. And yay. I don't like that book, but A, as we've seen, it's not the worst <laughs> Jason Todd origin that we've got on the list. That it is not. It is not as that is not as fundamentally dumb as this comic is. This is a comic that is just dumb and does not understand the character it is trying to write. Yet it is not as dumb as 283 pushback that six part dumbass thing with hush where the right after hush where he's recruiting prometheus and doing these weird elaborate plans and joker is king of gotham and that is an equally fundamentally dumb comic i think it goes does this that. again get credit for being just one book it does you know it's interesting there's stuff up here Days of Rage, Night Quest, The Search, that have offensive content in them, but it feels like they're above some of that other stuff by being, in general, these competently made comics. The stuff down below in that area are both offensive and seem to be have fundamental problems as comics. Yeah. 281? I was about to say, below Master of the Future, above Days of Rage, 281. There we go. Uh, it's like we've been doing this for a while. A little bit. So we made it through, and occasionally, you know, we need to do these terrible, terrible episodes to remind us why we get the good ones. Although we've been on quite a run the past few weeks. The highest we've gotten since episode 100 is 190 yikes you gotta see i guess it's a certain point you get to where things you know we've been doing this the list is longer but that is nothing has cracked the top half since episode 100 just wait matt until we get to the episode of books that you remember hating (laughs) yes uh fortunately Next week, I don't think we're going to run into those kind of problems. I think we might have, I don't know how great anything is, but I think we are going to wind up with some stuff that is going to be at least fun. Because next week, it's three stories with appearances by Batman's other alter ego, Mobster Matches Malone. Ooh. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, 
Bobby Tuba. Tim Rooney, Giorgios Reggioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorn for the McThorny. <laughs> you can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at comicsxf.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for a weekly Friday roundup of new bat books from my other show wmqna where my longtime best friend dan grote and i interview comics creators retailers publishers journalists and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff will and i are writing and stay safe out there folks gotham is not a place to be after dark